Welcome to Perspectives, a podcast from Zeit Contemporary Art, exploring art and its ideas. I'm your host, Samuel Shapiro. This is an episode about Andy Warhol, but not about Campbell's Soup or Marilyn Monroe. No, we're not here to talk about the textbook Andy Warhol, who catalyzed pop art's emergence in the early 1960s. Instead, I am joined here by two of the field's leading experts to talk about Warhol's late work, about his final decade, the 1980s. Long understudied, scorned by some and simply ignored by most, this crucial period of Warhol's career has just recently begun to be re-evaluated, leading to a wealth of new scholarship about an artist many thought they knew all too well. To explore this period, its relative neglect over the past three and a half decades, and its utterly unfamiliar artworks, I spoke with Jessica Beck and Mark Liocano. Jessica Beck is the Milton Fine Curator of Art at the Andy Warhol Museum in Pittsburgh, where she's worked since 2014. Trained as an art historian at the University of Chicago in the Courtauld Institute of Art in London, Jessica has curated many Warhol projects, including Andy Warhol, My Perfect Body, Adman, Warhol Before Pop, and Andy Warhol, 60 Last Suppers. Jessica has been a visiting scholar at Carnegie Mellon University, and during the Warhol Museum's current closure, she's taken on another understudied aspect of Warhol's practice, his many published books, through a series of short lectures on the Warhol Museum's YouTube page. Mark Liocano is a Brooklyn-based art historian, writer, and curator, with a PhD from New York University's Institute of Fine Arts. He teaches art and design, history and theory at the Parsons School of Design, and has written and lectured extensively on Warhol. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on Warhol's abstractions, and he served as the curatorial research associate for the recent blockbuster exhibition, Andy Warhol, From A to B and Back Again, at the Whitney Museum of American Art in New York. In this conversation, we debate whether late Warhol was washed up or resurgently experimental, discussing a wide range of his artistic production and how it has come to be seen in a new light. This episode is presented in conjunction with Zeit Contemporary Art's viewing room, Andy Warhol, The Last Decade, which runs online through July 15. And now, it's my pleasure to share with you Jessica Beck and Mark Liocano's perspectives. Since Warhol's death in 1987, critics have typically located the apotheosis of his work in the 1960s, claiming that, unlike Warhol himself, his artwork never recovered from his near-fatal shooting in 1968. According to this narrative, by the 1980s, Warhol was no longer critically articulating the experience of American life under conditions of industrial capitalism and mass spectacle, but instead had come to cynically embrace those conditions in pursuit of ever more profit and notoriety. Both of you, in defiance of that narrative, have made elegant and persuasive arguments for the importance of Warhol's late work. So I'd like to start by asking for your responses, your counterarguments to the claim that Warhol was all downhill after the 60s. I, I can start on, on that. Um, yeah, I particularly... Uh, love the late part of Warhol's career and I mean obviously the 1960s work is undeniably beautiful and it's this youthful moment for Warhol also this very hungry moment for him in New York he's reached New York he spent 10 years working in advertising building a network uh, carving out his place in the art world really struggling to do that and doing it well and so it's undeniable that that work of the 60s is really powerful but I like to think of the like uh, later period is sort of 
uh, Warhol after death, <laughs> you know, after this near death experience, life after death, because mm -hmm. um, there's this whole recovery period for Warhol after his shooting. And it really was uh, physically a very burdensome, gruesome experience for him. And there were surgeries after the shooting, lots of recovery. Um, but there's an enormous output of work with Warhol. Obviously, there's the portrait work, there's a re uh, commitment and a, a new fascination again with photography that becomes almost a daily habit in the final 11 years of his life. Um, but there's a real investigation, not just in commission work, but especially in those final few years of his life, a real interest in advertising work. Again, you see the black and white advertisement paintings in media. Media is a constant in Warhol's work. This language of media is really prominent in this late part of his career. Um, the body ends up being a really significant moment during this moment of a health crisis, the AIDS epidemic in New York. So I, I think that actually once you get past that sort of recovery period with Warhol where he's actually physically getting back into painting with these portrait commissions and physically kind of rebuilding himself, you have a whole new brand of material. You have Interview Magazine, you have TV, you have photography, you have large scale, almost kind of salon style painting that starts becoming part of his practice. So you have collaborations with younger artists again, you have a whole new factory built around this Warhol brand of business with the office of young um, associates around him. So actually I think when we really look at that later period of his work, there's a whole new version of Warhol. And I think this idea this negative light that persists, I think is unfortunate. And I personally think it's just because a lot of the work actually hasn't fully been seen. So um, the, the one main issue sometimes with Warhol scholarship is that the catalog raisonné has only made it to 1978, I believe the most recent volume. So if we think of that scholarship and the ability to actually see all of the paintings. So the ladies and gentlemen paintings, for instance, the volume you know, cataloging all of the ladies and gentlemen paintings recently came out. So uh, in the past few years. So you have a moment now that exhibitions can start saying, whoa, okay, let's really look at the ladies and gentlemen paintings. There's three over 360 of those canvases that Warhol made, how enormous that project really was at that moment in the seventies for Warhol. So I think by the time that research catches up, we'll be able to actually look at that eighties period for Warhol as hugely productive, enormously productive. So um, personally, I think it's just about being able to see that work. A lot of that work is scattered as well. A lot of those advertisement paintings, for instance, weren't made for a commission. Uh, some of them weren't stretched after Warhol's death. So that kind of visibility, I think, leads to the lapse of scholarship for the late part of Warhol's career. So although the three and a half decades since Warhol's death may seem like a long time, you're actually saying that it might not have been long enough for us to begin to fully see all the work and grapple with its implications. Well, I'll just say, and I'll let Mark contribute to our conversation on this too. The interesting thing about Warhol is that he, he died suddenly. It wasn't as if he had this really long, late career period. You know, it was a sudden surprise for him, for the world. And it was also a sudden surprise in the fact that his studio was left in a way that things weren't finished or... Um, projects were still undergoing, being, you know, worked on the stone photographs, the large scale Last Supper paintings with advertisements. Many of them were still in the studio. These advertisement paintings. So, um, I think that this way that we want to categorize Warhol 
in the art historical narrative of these different pockets, these different decades, different interests, I think is really counterintuitive to his narrative and to his story because there's a language, I think, with Warhol that starts in the 50s and the early 60s. And for me, it continues until 1987 with Warhol. That's why you see a lot of repetition of subject matter. I think there's a real fingerprint or a stamp, a language, a Warholian, Warholian language that continues throughout his career. So this idea that we have to categorize into early, mid, late, I don't think fits with Warhol. So I think this idea that late is bad or less than or negative is just part of the categorization system that we have in art history. So. Yeah, and I'll just add uh, a bit of historiography to this too. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what this negativity is based on is this sort of American a presumption amongst American critics that Warhol was this artist of the 60s who was, you know, making art out of daily life, almost apolitically and non-critically, right? And so when he gets shot in 68 and you have this transition from the summer of love into, you know, Altamont and beyond into the 70s, which were a much darker time, they sort of wanted to to give up on on those excesses of the 60s, right? So for them, this sort of American dream quote unquote, that's, that's in Warhol's work of the 60s, uh, was gone. And, and there was this sort of large scale abandonment of him. Now, that was completely different in Europe, where he was always seen as a very political artist. And uh, that was maintained even after 1968. So a lot of the late, what we are calling the post-68 work, uh, was only shown in Europe, and was for European audiences, uh, where it was still you know, widely praised and uh, considered highly politically charged work. I mean, like the Mao pictures, the hammer and sickles, uh, you know, all of those were, were seen as political commentary, even the dollar signs, you know, to some degree. And uh, so Warhol never stopped being a serious artist in, in Europe. And in America in the 70s and 80s, he gets more associated with, you know, glitz and glam and Studio 54 and things like that. So when he appears on the love boat and, uh, and in Tootsie and things like that, uh, that's just, you know, the sort of dregs of the Warhol's character that are, that are what American audiences were exposed to. And that was not universal, you know? So, so a lot of that work is still uh, yet to be discovered as Jessica was saying in, in the States. Well, you just mentioned the dollar signs, and to take one example that could clarify the relationship between earlier and later work, uh, we could compare the series of dollar bill paintings Warhol produced in the 1960s, which were some of his very first silkscreens, with the series of dollar sign paintings you just mentioned made in the 1980s. The dollar bills were seen as formally innovative reflections on their relentless commodification of aesthetic experience, and the late dollar signs, given Warhol's market prominence at the time they were produced, were seen by some as satirical nods and by others as gestures of surrender to the relentless commodification of his own work, mm -hmm. even willful demonstrations of the interchangeability of artwork and commodity sign. What do you make of the relationship between these two series and what does that relationship tell us about the development of Warhol's project? You can uh, start, Mark, yeah. I, I will just say that, so, a lot of that comes from, you know, the, the two big quotes of Warhol saying that he wanted to be a business artist and, and the best art was good business and uh, saying that he liked money on the wall. And, you know, instead of instead of collectors buying two hundred thousand dollar paintings, they should just take bags of money and hang them on the wall. And, you know, in this 
was read kind of almost like unironically <laughs> amongst Americans again, who kept considering Warhol as a apolitical and you know uncritical artist. Uh, so when the the dollar signs premiered again, they were they were showing shown at Castelli. Warhol's relationship with the Castelli Gallery uh, eroded. And, and you know, someone needs to research this, but why that happened. Like he had very few shows in the 70s with Castelli. Uh, and when the dollar signs were shown, they were shown in a basement, right? They were not, it was not to any aplomb. They were not shown to any sort of critical acclaim. Uh, so they were already, you know, sort of relegated to this, this less than status. Uh, if you contextualize them, they were also shown in Europe. If you contextualize them with the other series that he's making at the time, the things like the guns, the crosses, uh, and the knives, right? Uh, and the hammer and sickle, uh, and the skulls and things like that. Skulls, he said he made for fascism, hammer and sickle, he made for communism. So here he's picturing capitalism, right? He's picturing capitalism in the age of Reagan, uh, as this sort of abstract symbol of what, uh, the economy is and can be, right? And uh, there's another picture in this show of the, the Joseph Boys picture, a portrait that he does in, in 1980, just before these dollar sign pictures too. And, you know, Boys was at that time starting a new political party in Germany, the, the German Green Party, uh, which was you know, sort of staunchly anti-capitalist and anti-communist, right? It was supposed to be this alternative way. And Warhol was really involved with that, actually, with Boys at the time and made a series of prints uh, to promote it and uh, uh, was a sort of a spokesperson uh, for Boys in a way. And uh, there's that quote that he wanted Boys to come to America and, and you know, be a politician here, too. Uh, there, there's something to that in these pictures, too, you know, in these dollar sign pictures. I don't think they're as sarcastic. And I also think, think about them in terms of the, uh, both the hammer and sickle and the shadow pictures. Uh, and the myth paintings that he makes in 1982, where he's he is sort of investigating the mythologies of America and what America is in 1980, and he's thinking very retrospectively as well. So the connection to the 60s, you know, dollar uh, uh, pictures are are is there uh, as well because he's also making these these reversal paintings at the time, which are uh, you know the shadow versions of his earlier uh, paintings. So I mean, it's it's all just again it's all just this he makes these right after or, or just as Reagan is being elected, uh, and so and we're coming out of a huge recession, and so it's it's there are is all this sort of uh, um, reckoning with what America is and what capitalism is and can do and looks like at the time. Yeah, and I'll just add to that. I think the other really interesting part of this is Warhol's personal relationship to class and to money and how that. You know, in that 1962 moment when he's doing these uh, dollar, uh, two dollar bill and dollar bill drawings and silk screen and experimenting with stamps, he's also doing H&S green stamp paintings right before that. So H&S green stamps, you know, speak directly to a working class mm -hmm. subset of America that would have collected these little stamps in a book, taken them to the grocery store or gotten them from the grocery store and then received, you know, an iron, an iron or like a tea kettle or some sort of like, you know, common uh, kitchen appliance for these saved stamps. So when you look at the later period, he's again reached another level of access, I think, to wealth. He's doing all of these portrait commissions, but the people that he's first starting with are this, you know, European elite. And there's this story of him going to one of these estates 
in uh, a limousine showing up and just realizing the amount of wealth. And he says something when he's leaving that, you know, this can't last like this, this kind of wealth. Someone has to do something about this. So it's really interesting to think too about Warhol's personal relationship to money and class around these moments that he's making these paintings because by the seventies and eighties, he does again, reach another subset of uh, class and wealth. And, but he's always thinking about money uh, personally with his staff, He's the mirror of the time of the American culture. But then there's also a flip side, I think, with him of a personal narrative that actually comes out a lot in, in the work. So definitely to what Mark was saying, there's this total reflection in both of those periods of what's happening in the American economy, the American dream, capitalism, that sort of perspective. And then there's also this interesting personal relationship that Warhol has in 62 and then much later to money and to how he's building his own wealth. Yeah. I, I think too, another thing to know about the dollar sign pictures, they didn't sell. No one wanted them because, because this, it, it is this sort of ultimate side, like ostentation, you know, of your flaunting your own wealth in a weird way. Right. And so there is a bit of criticality, I think, built into that too. Like, you know, if you're, if you want money on the wall, here you go kind of mm -hmm. thing. And I think something we also have to remember about that, that the dollar sign or the dollar pictures from the sixties is that they're funny. And that it's a drawing uh, that, that has this like cartoony George Washington on them. And, you know, it, and, and pictures like $192 bill, $1 bills, it, it's not different $1 bills. It's the same dollar bill over and over again, right? So it's not an accumulation of wealth. It's the same dollar over and over again. So, it, it, you know, there is irony built into the, the form of the pictures too. So you think the dollar signs were one step too far for many of the collectors who were viewing their Warhols only as repositories of exchange value even. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Well, I'm but they're question. so great though. <laughs> like the color. Yeah, the I'm colors are great. The master colorist, you know, when you see yeah. those dollar sign paintings now, like the color combinations are incredible and they really do, as you were bringing up like shadows and Mao and the hammer and sickle. I mean, the genius yeah. of the Mao paintings is the color. Uh, that's the genius of those paintings. And, you know, Warhol's saying when he's making those paintings, oh, it's so fashion for Mao to be, to have yeah, his yeah. face around everywhere. This idea that Mao could be fashion and this, this idea that, you know, it's not always with Warhol about the idea, it's how the image sells. Because the initial exchange around those Mao paintings is, will you do Einstein? Will you do, the yeah. commission was, will you paint um, Albert Einstein? And Warhol counters with, well, isn't Mao so much better um, as an image? And so it's just really fascinating to think of him as image-based color, thinking of color very strategically. And again, that goes back for me to that 50s work in advertising, really understanding the mechanics of imagery and color and what can sell and how to edit an image. All those conversations he's having in the 50s with fashion editors on how to make the image better, mm -hmm. uh, I think gets ingrained so deeply that by the time you get to these dollar signs, there's such a sophistication of handling of that work. And you could see him, you know, there's video footage of him painting one of these large Mao paintings. Uh, you know, how fast can you paint this painting? There's just intuitive process, I think, by that point in Warhol's career. So um, I think that that part of it too, is that uh, when you look at those dollar sign paintings, now I see them almost on par with like color abstraction in a way for me. Mm -hmm. 
Well, we'll definitely come back to how they relate to the abstractions in a moment, but to take up one other practice that's recently been reevaluated, we could talk about Warhol's portraiture. Much was made at the time of Warhol as a court painter of the 1970s. He was often referred to as a society portraitist because he catered to upper-class denizens. Jessica, you wrote your thesis on Warhol portraiture, and Mark, you worked on the impressive salon-style installation of portraits in the Whitney show. Uh, was he simply churning out highly saleable likenesses to an emerging plutocracy, or can these portraits too be understood as a more complex project? Mark and I had such a great conversation about these <laughs> earlier in the week. And Mark, you should start because you've you really put together that display at the Whitney, and and I'm so fascinated by this period. So so why don't you take the mic? Yeah, I mean, so so. Uh, it, it's a, it's his single largest body of work. Is this is this are these portraits from the seventies uh, on uh, starting roughly roughly just after he was uh, shot? So they were the first thing that he uh, started working on afterwards. He was doing portrait commissions throughout the sixties uh, and even in the fifties to some degree uh, in in certain drawings and uh, some of his album covers can be considered uh, almost portrait commissions in a way. The Count Basie. Uh, it, looks like some of the later portraits that he does for, for album covers. Uh, one of the last things he does is Aretha Franklin. So there is a nice sort of book in there. Um, so there's a lot of presumptions about the portraits. And again, because they're so disparate and have never really been shown on mass. So that's one thing we were trying to, to, to do uh, was to show the diversity within them and to show, you know, what sort of society they actually represent. So there's this quote in Bob Colicello's book, Holy Terror, uh, where he recounts that Warhol eventually had this project. The reason why they're all 40 by 40 is that Warhol wanted to make this large scale, uh, quote unquote, portrait of society that he was going to pitch to the Met uh, to have sort of on permanent display. Uh, that would be all of the leftover uh, pictures from all the portrait commissions. Cause he would always make a few extra hoping that people would buy the extra ones once they saw them, uh, but they rarely did, right? <laughs> so, uh, because there was a sliding scale, you know, if you bought one, it was one price you bought two, you know, you could attack, the more you bought, the cheaper they became. So, uh, <laughs> so we wanted to sort of recreate what we thought this portrait of society would look like and then what it would actually be. Um, and, you know, I think like anything, it, it makes a social network. It makes, uh, you start to see Warhol's connections and what sort of circles he was running in. Um, and, you know, even just the, the limits uh, or limitations of the art world at the time and how, how big it was or how small it was really. Um, and the, the ones that we decided on and, and sought out were the ones that were the closest connections to Warhol himself. So the people he knew, his intimates, his friends, his colleagues, his dealers. Um, and many of the ones that we had in the Whitney show were actually trades. Uh, so, so while it was this money-making opportunity, and again, it became like an SH Grease stamp for him where he would use it as a form of currency. So he traded portraits for uh, works of art. He traded uh, with, with other artists and with galleries. So he would go to galleries and like, I will do your portrait if you'll give me this Jackson Pollock, for instance, uh, or this Marcel Duchamp. And that's actually how he built up his the, the pretty amazing collection that he had when he died that was eventually auctioned off uh, was through these trades. Uh, and with artists, you would like Joseph Kasuth and, uh, you know, uh, many sort of artists you wouldn't necessarily affiliate with, uh, with Warhol. 
Um, so it does provide this sort of interesting picture of Warhol's uh, social world. Uh, but then there's friends, his mother, uh, his boyfriends, uh, his, people who worked in the factory, um, you know, so, so it's, it's not as, um, commercial, I guess, or, 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 or uh, because the, the 79 Whitney show was, was held up as this like ultimate sellout moment for Warhol. And then he's, he's just really just kowtowing to the, the, the high society, um, which, you know, he made money off of these people. And again, a lot of the European commissions that were these European elites and they came through his gallery there. So the ones in America were coming through the studio and the ones in Europe were coming through uh, Bruno Bischofberger, who was his primary dealer in the 1970s and 80s. Um, so in many cases, he, he was not uh, connected to any of those people and he would just go um, and take their pictures and then come back and do the portraits. Um, but it was different with people that he knew. And, and, and uh, as we were chatting about yesterday, a lot of people rejected them uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> upon, upon reception because they weren't necessarily, you know, Warhol-y enough, I think, for a lot of people. And mm -hmm. they do get really painterly. They do get really abstract at times. And they don't necessarily coincide with the aesthetic that you would necessarily uh, you know, attribute to Warhol. Yeah, I think this is the thing I found really fascinating about these early portraits, like 70 to 72. It's he has just starting out this new style, this kind of abstract style. And then you get to a point where he's using his fingers in them, like the Ivan Karp portrait, for instance. Um, but it's in that moment that you do get all these people coming back to say that they don't want their their painting. And some of them say things like, I I I look too old or my nose looks too big or something like a comment about the shadows of the screen or the angle that was used of the Polaroids. And so when you see Warhol kind of figuring out how to change that idea by coming, becoming uh, less abstract, flatter, he controls the uh, setup of the portrait. You know, originally it was like he would go to someone's house and use this big shot Polaroid camera, let them wear whatever they wanted, take their, their photo. But much later, I don't know when it starts, 1978, they, they start getting flatter, 1976, 1978. It, it, it starts pretty, I mean, right after 74, like around 75, they start to it's, get a little flatter and, yeah. and but then they, they, they fluctuate up until they. Yeah. Like I, I, part of the thing I've found fascinating about the portraits too, is like, there's this whole process to making the portrait. And it, it often starts with like a lavish lunch of some kind, whether it was at the person's house, like there's this kind of like required lunch that went into the portrait making where Warhol could gossip. And, you know, maybe he could also suggest, will you do a story for interview magazine? Cause that's the other component that's taking place, taking mm -hmm. shape post-1968-69 uh, is Interview Magazine. So it's this whole, you know, as we were saying, like this whole idea of a social network that Warhol's really building, but it's the lavish lunch. And then you have this use of this particular camera, the big shot Polaroid, that would actually create a close proximity with the sitter. You know, it wasn't like a tripod that would be further away and you'd have a distance, but it'd be right up right up on your face. So, and when he does the Man Ray 
self-portrait commission, Man Ray comments on why do you use that camera? Warhol says something like, oh, it's the cheapest, which really wasn't true. But it's interesting that he would come back with that comment. But so he's very particular about the big shot camera. And then by the time he gets changes studios to 860 Broadway, where the portrait process became very regimented, he would have this lunch. You would go do the portrait and often involved asking the subject to take off their shirt. <laughs> and then they'd put on heavy makeup, have bright lights, so everything would become flattened. All the wrinkles, all the things that people age, that kind of thing that people commented on in those early portraits that they didn't like, they didn't think was flattering, was erased in these later portraits. So you have very flat, uh, wrinkle-free, kind of shadow-free um, images of people, um, portraits of people, so that, and Warhol Comments calls those early portraits his abstracts. So. I think it's interesting too, like, again, not to keep harping on this idea, but if you go back to that 1962 moment with the, uh, the Coca-Cola painting, that whole conversation of, is it the clean line version or is it the abstract? What am I going to do with my practice? I think it happens again. He's experimenting again in the same way, I think, post-shooting with these portraits of the gesture, this idea of color and shadow, and then flattening it all out. Um, so I, I think, again, it's this mirror that happens in that early 60s moment that he picks up later in his career. Yeah. And there's this bigger question, too, of like what you want a portrait to do or what should a portrait do or what is the aim of portraiture? And if it is about this either like depicting a, some kind of psychological interiority or uh, relaying somehow the relationship between the artist and the sitter, or if it's just about uh, asserting uh, status and asserting wealth uh, in some ways. And so I think he is sort of investigating all of those things and what portraiture can do and should be. Uh, I mean, starting from the, from the 60s on, I mean, the, the, um, uh, the films in, in a lot of ways are portraits as well. And so there's, Warhol's always kind of considering portraiture and identity and how to picture identity and uh, all of those things. I think between the kind of innovative formal concerns you've both been describing and that almost epistemological question about the function of a painting that you just brought up, Mark, it's a good segue um, into the abstract work that Warhol begins making in the late 70s and carries through through the 80s. He made several major abstract series, including The Shadows, a 102-panel painting, each of which repeats a spare shadow-like form, the oxidations, which were made by urinating onto metallic paints to produce a chemical reaction on the canvas, the Rorschachs, which are poured and folded black and white riffs on the famous psychological blobs, and the camouflages in which Warhol covered canvases of all sizes in that militaristic pattern. Um, Mark, given how different these series are, is it correct to group them all into a single narrative of abstraction, or should we actually understand these as entirely different projects? Yeah, I, that's that's a problem with Warhol in general. I, it's, and one of the theses of the show, and one of the things that we discovered in in putting the retrospective together, is you can't you can never really pull one aspect of Warhol out of his practice and and hold it up as an independent unit. I mean, he's thinking through ideas in all sorts of different mediums and in all sorts of different ways. And abstraction is no different. I mean, it, it runs through almost everything that he does in some way. Um, starting from the 50s on. And, you know, he was educated in it at a time. I mean, he was going to art school in the 
late 40s when abstraction was, you know, the sort of de facto mode of, of picture making. And actually, his he had a professor in school who was a sort of fallen abstractionist, someone who had, much like de Kooning, almost like given up on abstraction and or pure abstraction in a way. And so he was always somewhat ambivalent to it. He never sort of believed in the modernist dogma as it was uh, held up through the 50s and 60s. Um, so it was always just another tool in the arsenal. It was always another way to think through things or to, to um, represent something uh, in a way. So uh, it, it functions throughout. And I, I mean, the, the telling thing is that his first piss painting or oxidation, well, actually piss painting because it wasn't the, the metal involved, he made in, in the early 60s, uh, even before mm -hmm. he makes his pop works. So he's responding to ideas coming out of abstraction, but also out of fluxus. Uh, and trying to think about, you know, sort of automatic picture making uh, that's also social in some ways and also speaks to, you know, these ideas of base materiality and performance. Um, so it's, it's there from the beginning of his career as he's trying to assert himself as an avant-garde uh, painter and trying to, to sort of work his way into the gallery art scene or, or be seen as someone who's a more serious artist. Uh, that was one of the tools that he used. And again, it's telling in the 70s, he, he, there's this quote in the diaries about how he goes to the, um, uh, the, 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 the uh, Pompidou in, in France and tours it and, and just gets uh, upset with himself that he, all he does is society portraits and he wants to return to painting and he can't wait to get home and make some new paintings. And the things he makes when he gets back are the oxidation. So he's trying to, again, reassert himself within the avant-garde and think of himself as a radical painter. And he, he turns to this same idea that he had developed in the 60s and uh, pulls one of these things out of the closet and says, oh, gee, I wonder if that will work now, you know, and, and uh, <laughs> it just so happens it's in this moment uh, when, uh, like now, where we're at the, the world was in a recession and uh, unemployment was extremely high. Uh, and uh, so you see things like punk rock start to get developed out of these sort of social um, circumstances. And here was, uh, again, a sort of idea that resonated with that quite directly. And so Warhol was, was you know, engaged with the new ideas that were happening throughout New York and throughout Europe at the time. So to think of them as abstract uh, is, is not in the sense of the, the modernist sense of being removed from, from life or being sort of like pure. Obviously, they're not pure, right? They're, they're, <laughs> uh, they're made out of uh, urine. So, so uh, you have all of that. But... Again, I think it comes to the fore in the 70s and, and beyond because of this almost, you know, internal, inward-looking uh, stance that Warhol takes a little bit more so. And, they're, you know, the shadows, again, they're not considered Warholian in the sense because to do so, you would have to reconcile with the the more philosophical and spiritual aspects of, of Warhol's practice, which again are there throughout. So in that sense, do you still consider them to be kind of a continuation or an evolution of his longstanding painting practice? Or are these pictures a conceptual break, maybe even a negation of that practice? No, I think absolutely they are. I, it, because, I mean, one of the biggest uh, aspects of the 60s uh, silkscreen pictures is the is the noise, right? Is the blurs and the the smudges and all of that, which is ab abstraction. And that when he 
it turns to that when he when he's making the shadows, he says, you know, he liked he liked the blurry edges of the silk screen, and he wanted to make something that was all blurry edge, essentially, right? Um, so it is the noise that sort of acts. It's the signal to noise ratio in those pictures that sort of makes them function and makes them active. Um, so it's it is a, a continuation of that in a lot of ways. I think the other big point of you know. Mark, you were talking about this idea of how abstraction has this core element of pureness it, it, it invested in it. And Warhol's play with abstraction, her use of abstraction is continuously connected back to a body in some way. Mm -hmm. So you have the Rorschachs, for instance, which you know go directly back to this idea of uh, fantasy or, or an image that may be fantastical in some way, projection in some projection, way. Yeah. And then um, and then you have the piss paintings, obviously, also kind of a queering of a lot of that idea yeah. of abstraction that I think is really integral to Warhol's stories that he does take a, a, a somewhat humorous take, obviously, to use urine, but then kind of twists it and turns it on its head in, in many ways and queers it. And so um, you have him doing the sex part paintings around the same time that he's doing shadow paintings. There's this rumor that the shadow painting was made from one of the sex part photographs of, of erect penis, which isn't actually true, no, but no. <laughs> um, so there's this idea with him and some, and a lot of the sex part paintings, for instance, do have shadows in them. For instance, we have a torso painting of a behind that has deep shadows that cast the, the buttocks of, of a man. So, um, and it's done in a repetitive fashion that looks similar to how the shadows were originally installed. So I think with Warhol, this abstraction is often brings back a trace of the body which goes directly against the pillars of pure abstraction and, and queers it in many ways, inserts inserts this queer body in, in, in a lot of it. So um, I think that's one of the important elements with Warhol and abstraction. And again, to highlight what Mark was saying too, that it's just, I think with Warhol, abstraction is king. And it's like, mm -hmm. abstraction is like, the painting that was popular when he wanted the limelight of the Ocastelli Gallery and didn't have it and wasn't in, in that inner circle and was never accepted by that inner circle. And so I think it's constantly this golden ring of approval that he's sort of chasing his career, never able to fully get to. But when you look at something like that amazing uh, uh Last Supper, Camouflage Last Supper, you see that all of these ideas coalescing of the body, of the Catholic body, of uh, and abstraction media, and all of that twisted together in that amazing painting. So I think with Warhol, abstraction is this thing that he's always, this place of recognition that he's always trying to attain. Um, but he also always brings queerness or um, a body, some trace of a body back into it, into it, into that dialogue and sort of muddies the pureness of abstraction. Mm -hmm. in, I think in, in a political and an important way. So. Yeah, and he's always trying to reconcile between figuration and abstraction. I mean, from the 1950s mm -hmm. on, if you look at the paintings that he's making in the 50s and trying to show, they are this sort of, he's trying to make a middle ground between a kind of abstraction and then working in a figure in some way. Uh, and that, you know, speaks back to this ambivalence that that he has deep down inside. So none of his abstractions are ever really, quote unquote, abstract, right? The mm -hmm. Rorschach looks like a Rorschach test and the camouflage looks like something. It's not actually abstract. The shadow is a picture of a shadow, which is a shadow of nothing in particular. So it's it's an abstraction in, in lots of different ways, but also not an abstraction <laughs> because it's a, it's a photograph. He's certainly pushing the boundaries of abstraction uh, in, in more ways than one, the camouflage is 
he referred to as war pictures, and yeah. they do consciously open out onto the historical context of the Cold War and the engorging military-industrial complex that sustained it, um, as do other series like the Hammer and Sickles, which you just mentioned, and also the missile maps, which are silkscreen maps of Soviet missile bases. Uh, is there a discernible politics to be found in these works? And if so, is it based in engagement or perhaps nihilism? <laughs> Ooh. Uh, I think I think it's the the idea that Warhol pictured the Cold War is a very uh, prominent one from the get go too. I mean, there's the, the atomic bomb and and all that, and um, um, you know, there's been books written about this, uh, the language of the Cold War from the '60s on, um, and the the especially the missile maps. I mean, speaks to the anxieties of the Cold War, even as it existed in the '80s uh, of nuclear annihilation. I mean, that didn't go that didn't go away uh, in the Reagan era. Um, and the the camos uh, do as well because it is you know a particular camouflage uh, that is a military camouflage. Uh, I think from the from the Second World War. Um, and the thing with those that always strikes me too is that Warhol's sort of blending of genres, and those are their abstractions, their landscapes, and their war pictures. And so, you know, you have this kind of uh, again, muddying of of traditional genres in something, and the scale of those is on this, you know, sort of monumental salon scale that you would see, you know, a traditional war picture uh, depicted at. Um, but then it's of nothing in particular, <laughs> you know, uh, and it is it does it sort of devolve just into color and pattern and and shape. Um, so whether there's a discernible politics i think it's more of just speaking to you know the idea of of that's so crucial to modernity which is that of you know ultimate progress and ultimate annihilation being on the doorstep at any given time you know yeah i think that i mean i love the black and white advertisement paintings i think those are going to be one of the bodies of work that are going to come out at, in more display and people are going to put them together and understand like how amazing they actually are. But I think for sure that there's a reflection of a language, a politics of language happening in media at that mm -hmm. moment in the 80s with Warhol that he's capitalizing and showing. And one of the things I think is important too about those paintings is they were not a commission because so yeah. much of Warhol's work at that period is an idea from someone else saying, you know, an agreement, Alexander Yolas, whoever it is, Anselmino Luciano, like asking, will you do this painting of this person? Will you do this painting of this subject? So I think in those paintings, you have so much media language going on, like the economic shift taking place in New York with somebody wants to buy your apartment or somebody mm -hmm. wants to rent your apartment. I think the- Buy your is, apartment building, I think. Buy yeah. your apartment building, yeah. So, but I'm also interested in other paintings like Heaven and Hell or One Breath Away or Mark of the Beast 666 and this idea of the language being used around the AIDS epidemic taking place in New York. So you have war language going on, you have religious language happening uh, in the media around uh, the AIDS crisis. So you have this Reagan imagery, you have so much happening in the media and the noise of the media in America. So those paintings in particular are a giant reflection, I think, of the voice of the media in the 1980s. It's specifically with Warhol in New York. He's using often the New York Post, for instance, for a lot of those yeah. advertisements. So, um, and again, this low brow uh, 
journals that he's using, like the National Enquirer or the New York Post. So this 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 idea of class is also embedded in that, I think, with Warhol. But the language of those paintings are are really incredible. And piecing them together and then looking at them with 1961, you can see almost a mere reflection with Warhol. Yeah, and they're they're really interesting too in that sense that they're they're so anachronistic and they all look like they could have come from the 60s and yet mm -hmm. they are from the 80s and there is this sort of again Warhol's doing so much looking back at that time and and this is where he returns to hand painting as well right through mm -hmm. the Basquiat collapse um, he sort of rediscovers hand painting and he also rediscovers his early hand painted works from the 1960s and it's not for nothing that around this time Dia has a show uh, curated by Donna DeSalvo of Warhol's early hand painted uh, works that he's literally pulling out of the closet for the first time since the 60s and rediscovering. And and just like with the oxidations, you know, thinking, oh, gee, could this work now? Mm -hmm. And and it did. It spoke to the aesthetics of the 80s. And again, he's commenting, oh, 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 painting's coming back, and there's all these young painters, and I'm so jealous of them, people like uh, Julian Schnabel and Basquiat, you know, and uh, so he gets sort of reinvigorated to paint again. And at the same time, you have, you know, the politics of the 80s haven't come that far in terms of the Cold War. Uh, and even these illustrations, the way it's depicted in the media is, is similar in a weird way. Uh, also, I like the little ones of the shoes that are in the show because yeah. it's, 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 you know, telling that Warhol's early works were mostly illustrations of shoes. And so he's then making these ads of beetle boots and things, right? Uh, which again are really anachronistic. Like, I don't know if people wanted beetle boots in the eighties. Was, was, was there a resurgence of interest in beetle boots? Um, but again, these sort of really workaday illustrations that uh, were even antithetical to his own work, uh, super stylized work of the 1950s. Um, these almost you know, really anonymous um, illustrations, which were not uh, cutting edge in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> so, um, and I, I will say too about the the maps. I mean, I think politically too, they also are are charged through the Basquiat collabs. And the one um, you know, of all the there's there's so many of those paintings. And the one that we really sort of keyed in on for the the retrospective was this one called Paramount. Um, which has built within it this giant map of hand-painted map of China that Warhol does. And, and so the map sort of, a lot of that imagery actually comes out of the collabs and is sort of the things that he's painting on those paintings for Basquiat then to overlap with. And so there is conversation uh, in that. And, you know, it, it's also at this time he's making the, the painting, the, the uh, headline painting of uh, that speaks to Michael Stewart's death, uh, who was a, a young black artist who was um, killed in, in police custody by the police um, and was friends with Basquiat and, and Keith Haring. Um, so, you know, he's, again, there is, there is politics built into all of these and, and returning back to newspapers and headlines and things like that. For sure. And, you know, I can't let go of the small detail that Paramount, yes. John Gold yeah. works for Paramount Pictures. John Gold is Warhol's late boyfriend and lover, and he passes away in 1986 of AIDS at 33. So mm -hmm. uh, this politics, also personal narrative, it's it's really in deeply in, invested in, in mm -hmm. those paintings, in Warhol's paintings. Yeah, and in that painting too, there's the, the Reagan heads. And so mm -hmm. we have this movie star president uh, mm -hmm. 
in, in the 80s too, which is interesting. I was thinking about that earlier, like why Warhol wasn't more obsessed with Reagan actually in that regard. And he does show up, uh, you know, here and there in the works, but there's no, there's no sort of, I think, and I think kind of the dollar signs are the response <laughs> in a lot of ways, in the same ways that the, the flowers um, were a response to the Goldwater campaign and uh, Lyndon B. Johnson. And there's this quote when he's making the flowers that, oh, if Goldwater got elected, I, all I could paint was Goldwater because art would be over. Uh, essentially. And then when he gets defeated, he, he can go on and make the flowers. And I feel like, you know, he, Warhol was plugging for, for Carter uh, and uh, was definitely not a Reaganite, <laughs> it, even though some people who worked for him were. Um, and Nancy Reagan shows up on the cover of Interview Magazine. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, and controversially, right? Yeah. Um, uh, thus, thus going to the, the, the narrative that Warhol had sold out. So you both mentioned his relationship to Basquiat and certain other neo-expressionist painters, uh, but another mode of art happening in the 1980s was kind of more concept-oriented appropriation art. Is he also in dialogue with artists of the pictures generation, or was that something he was absolutely. staying away from? No, absolutely. I mean, they were in dialogue with him, even if he wasn't in dialogue with them. Uh, I mean, a lot of the logic of the pictures generation comes out of Warhol. Um, and I think you can you, you can start to see things like the shadows uh, in line with um, and actually uh, Tom Lawson, who was part of the, the pictures generation writes a, a pretty good review, uh, one of the few good reviews of the shadows um, when they when they come out. So, yeah, no, they were definitely looking at Warhol and thinking about his work and uh, and even even current uh, stuff. Yeah, even though. Okay. Well, he gets he gets so affiliated through Basquiat with the the quote unquote neo expressionists, right? And through uh, Bishop Berger, uh, who is his dealer, who shows many of them. Um, so he gets pulled in that direction. But I think conceptually, he's closer actually to the pictures generation artist yeah. than, than yeah. he's someone like Julian Schnabel. Yeah. It is interesting to think of his early canvases, like one of those the one of the earliest silk screens of the baseball player and then the move that idea of motion in his static imagery and this idea of the flicker of the silk screen that happens in the disaster paintings or the flicker of the elvis the silver elvis so it is interesting to think of that early 60s moment for him and having that picture generation look back at, at that work of, of media um yeah for sure it's also He's, being reshown at dia at the time too and yeah. there was you know, the, the the disaster paintings weren't widely shown in America up until the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, and the oxidations don't appear in the States until 1986 when they're shown at Gagosian uh, in one of his first shows uh, downtown. You know, so there there is this sort of right before his death, this sort of renaissance. And then Mike Bidlow does the thing at PS1, the anti-war or non-Warhol or not Warhol uh, mm -hmm. show of, of kind of copies, Warhol copies and... Um, yeah. The other big thing in the 80s, I guess, is, is MTV. And mm -hmm. uh, uh, also Cindy Sherman was on Warhol's TV show, uh, interviewed in one episode. So there's that connection there, too. Uh, and Robert Longo was, too. I think there a number of them actually may, may have appeared on uh, Andy Warhol TV. There's this quote in uh, Lucy Mulroney's book on Interview Magazine about they did um, a survey of their readers, just thinking of this the similar audience to interview as TV. And 
the headline was young, rich, intelligent, and willing to spend was the, <laughs> the way that the readers were described of interview magazine. So mm. this idea of money, new money, youth, uh, happening in New York, and that's the kind of audience that he's going after. That the you know the interview imagines itself working for, and mm. um, so mm. that that's kind of interesting. Just think of this yuppie culture kind of taking yep. shape, and in Warhol's uh, immediate circle, you know the yep. people that he's working with are young and um, fairly well off, and, and um, are, are happy to circulate in this new wealth pool that yeah. Warhol is participating in. And um, so there's a real reflection of that kind of culture insider nature and wealth insider and design and dance. And so um, I think that the media that Warhol's playing with, with TV and interview kind of sync up in a really interesting way. And then obviously again with the portraits, they're kind of all mm -hmm. interconnected to this larger network, the social network that he's building. Right. I was just going to say, you're making interviews sound like it's a continuation of that project to create a portrait of society, um, yeah. but mirroring society in this. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Well, as we come towards a close, I'd love to talk to you both about how the critical reception of the late work has changed in recent years. Jessica, how does your team at the Warhol Museum present late Warhol and how has that presentation changed since the museum's founding? Well, that's a great question. You know, the interesting thing about the museum collection is we have a lot of late Warhol because no one wanted it. <laughs> so um, we have good these, stuff too. Yeah, we have these two sides of Warhol's practice that didn't really sell. So we have a ton of the early drawings of the commercial drawings, things that Warhol kept in his studio and didn't have out in the world. And we have a lot of the 80s uh, drawings. We have a lot of the black and white advertisements. We have the large zeitgeist painting. We have a lot of the, we have the Last Supper, the Big C, this large um, advertisement work with Last Supper imagery. So we have a lot of these 80s works that the people were not paying attention to and didn't want. But um, I think the, the thing about the museum that's been really important and something that I strive to do in my scholarship and work on Warhol is to talk about the queerness in a lot of the work and to really bring that out. And so we have no problem showing the sex part paintings, for instance, we make sure that those paintings are on view and that, um, or the oxidation paintings should be on view or these um, large um, physiological diagram paintings are on view or um, his male anatomy painting from 1961. So. I think um, the late work with the museum, we tell the story of Warhol's life. So it's done, the collection is hung chronologically. So you get this sense of a narrative of how his um, life is shifting, how the practice shifts along with that story. But, um, you know, the skull paintings are a large part of the collection as well. We have some of the very enormous skulls um, that are beautiful and permanently installed in, in the museum. So um, I think there really is um, a lot of the gems are actually some of the later canvases, the late 70s into the early 80s um, work for Warhol. And, um, you know, I think we've talked about this earlier that there's just this reception that for some reason it's bad. And I, and I think it's really just about visibility and good curating. And so I think, um, part of the success of the Whitney retrospective at, at the New York um, display of it was you have that final room with the camouflage last supper with the Mona Lisa with the abstraction and you have this sublime painting, you know, this painting of a true painter, someone that's really invested in painting. And so 
I think that was the success of that exhibition is you have really strong editing. Sometimes with Warhol, you have a show that's overdone, overwrought. You can have too many of something. There are moments in Warhol's career when there's just not a good painting, when maybe he wasn't at his best and that's okay. And so um, I, I think there's something to be said about good curating. I think the scholarship has to catch up. I think it would be a real disservice to Warhol's story if we just kept repeating <laughs> the work of the 1960s. So uh, for me, I'm heavily interested in uh, the way Warhol's personal narrative starts to come out in that uh, late period in his career. And I think, you know, there is this moment now where we think Warhol's so connected to our current uh, moment of visual media and social networking and all of these things. And I think it's really just that we're able to really see so much of his work now online. And yeah. um, I think, I, I can only hope that better curating, continued a certain caliber of curating with Warhol will help then the scholarship and the visibility of this late career um, really take shape. Yeah, and I will add, so, that was very intentional on our part. And it, Kinesta McShine's retrospective at MoMA in 1989, which was the last American uh, organized Warhol retrospective, had very little work from the 70s and 80s. Uh, it, had, it was almost entirely 60s work. Didn't have any 50s stuff. Uh, and, you know, the last two decades was was essentially like a couple of galleries tacked on the end. And that has continued. And um, so we made a concerted effort to to make almost half the show uh, late work, which which otherwise <laughs> never been done. And uh, I mean, is why Donna brought me on to the team is because mm -hmm. I was the late Warhol guy. So, um, you know, there, there is a lot of work to be done. I will also say that that I think it is a generational thing. And I think younger uh, critics and artists especially um, don't have this kind of bias. And I, I will say, I think artists especially um, look to the late work um, more often than, than not these days. I mean, for instance, Kara Walker had a great uh, talk on the shadows and things like that. So I think through that too, they will gain exposure and, and we will gain understanding of them uh, that way as well. Um, and there's, there, there won't be sort of the, I, I think for American art, you know, almost in general, like we want to forget the 70s and 80s. I was just, it's not know, just Warhol. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, when you do look at those 60s photographs of Warhol in the Silver Factory, it, the, the, the nostalgia is so yeah. strong and that's the attraction and the allure of that moment. All of that work, the EPI, the exploding plastic inevitable with the velvet underground. I mean, yeah. Nico's so gorgeous, you know, and so Warhol just really captured that globe of a nostalgia and like a snow globe, we like to shake it and look back into it and just dream about this very dreamy moment. But I mean, that's, that's the success of his work, right? That he can make us look back and it still feels very contemporary. It still feels very dreamy and nostalgic, but I think the reflection of media and the economy and class and all these things shifting and changing in America, seventies and eighties is what you get in that later career. And when we start looking at Warhol's story and the amount of work, you know, even mm -hmm. at the Warhol museum, the archive that we have is not fully cataloged. So it is each time a researcher coming in and literally digging through the looking for the needle in the haystack yeah, of like yeah. a receipt or a correspondence of some kind that's going to uncover some 
new connection. I think it's part of the, the way that Warhol's cataloged and historicized, we're still uncovering, truly. Uh, you know, go ahead. <laughs> we could go on forever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, was, I will just say it is a huge curatorial task. And one of the problems is there's been, it's it's so hodgepodge and you, you see bits and pieces everywhere and you don't get a sense of the big picture. And uh, there's a lot of still sorting uh, to be done. Uh, I will also say, and this is maybe the boldest thing you could say, is that I can only think of one other artist who has died and come back, and that's Goya. And when you think about late Goya now, mm. uh, it's it's quintessential Goya, right? I mean, those the, the black pictures at the Prado and things like that. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's hope for late Warhol. And I think the shadows are amongst the best things he ever did and, um, are up there with, with the <laughs> shadow or the black paintings of the Prado. So, uh, there you go. <laughs> I would second that point. <laughs> well, I think that hopeful note is a good place to bring this to an end. So Jessica and Mark, thank you both so much for coming on Perspectives. Thank you. Thanks for having us. It was us. fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Perspectives, a podcast from Zeit Contemporary Art. Until next time, I'm your host, Samuel Shapiro.